HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Subscribe today at southernfarmandgarden.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Paul Greco of Tawar in New York City. We'll talk to Paul about Riesling, other wines that don't get their due, and we'll talk about the wine and restaurant business a little. We'll taste a 2013 German Riesling from the Saar region on our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. If God were to send a prophet to earth to preach the gospel of Riesling and other underappreciated wines, he'd probably send down Paul Greco. And I guess in reality, he did. Paul was literally born into a restaurant family in Toronto and worked his way through some of the best restaurants in New York City, helping earn a couple of James Beard Awards along the way, eventually becoming an owner of Hearth and currently Tawar in New York City, a place Paul calls an elitist wine bar for everyone. Still use that slogan? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Paul, you have a long, colorful journey. You've had a long, colorful journey in life and in wine. And I think it would be interesting to our audience. So I want you to tell us a little about how you got to the point, terroir. But I know it could take a long time. I want to talk to you about wine, Riesling, terroir, other things. So get me through that in the best, quick possible way. 
Perfect. Awesome. Great to be here again. Well, born in 1965 in Toronto, uh, birthed by an incredible mother, um, and I grew up in a household dominated by men. My grandfather, who had opened La Scala Restaurant in Toronto in 1961, and my father, Charles, who started working with him there on the first day. And I believe my father was working when he was called to the hospital to say that his second son was on the way. Alas, literally born in the <laughs> exactly. business. And all of my memories of youth, excluding academia, were going to my father to work on Saturdays during the day to polish silverware, set tables, clean glassware, blah, 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 the mundane stuff. And the first lesson my father taught me about the business was it's the great managers have to focus on the mundane stuff on a daily basis. And if you get on top of that, everything else is easy. So even today, I still enjoy polishing glassware, silverware, blah, blah, blah. Can't fluff that stuff off. Anyway, and I can't say growing up in a family business is awesome. Growing up in a family business sucks. We were open six days a week, and on the seventh day when we should have rested, what did we do? We talked about the goddamn restaurant, (laughs) driving my mother batshit crazy. (laughs) Anyway, um, and I didn't really want to do it, but when I was attending the University of Toronto, let's just say I was asked to leave the University of Toronto for practicing a little bit too much hospitality. So my father grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, you're coming to work here. I did reluctantly, but I was a bartender. I had fun with the fellow staff members, even though I was literally the owner of the joint. Right. Um, with no experience underneath me. But uh, I had a fun summer, and later on that summer, my father came to me and said, Paul, I'm sending you to Italy for 28 days. You're going by yourself. You're going to two weeks Tuscany, week in Piedmont, week in Veneto. These are the producers you're going to see wine-wise. These are the restaurants you're going to go and eat at. And I was scared. What was the thinking behind that? Um, that was like old school gap year or something? I I wish I, the term gap year had been known back then because I really shouldn't have gone to university, but I did. Right. I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, and I guess that trip was my father telling me, this is going to be your life. There was no discussion. It was, you're going. But once I got there, I uh, got over the, the fright of being in Europe by myself as a 20-year-old kid. Um, not being able to drive a standard car, blah, blah, blah. I fell in love. I fell in love with wine, with food. Uh, I realized that all of those things that I really, really wanted to study at university, but I couldn't because I had to state a major and I didn't want to. I wanted to be a a renaissance man. (laughs) Maybe one day I could still be a renaissance man. But I was not allowed to do that broad range of study. But in Italy, it showed me that in wine, I get to learn about history, culture, civilization, religion, philosophy, art, blah, blah, blah. And I came back from those 28 days saying, all right, this is it. This is my business, and wine is going to be my forte. Um, so I stayed with the family business. It was a very formal— So your dad kind of got it right. Dad got it right. He knew, he knew where your head was at. He knew getting away and exposing you to that— Yeah, he dragged me to the door, and I was kicking and screaming, and then I walked by myself through that door and into it. But wait, one quick question. So you fall in love with wine. Could have easily been cooking. Could have, you know, become a chef. Could have been just restaurants and operations. I mean, why why was it that wine overtook you? It was 
wine encapsulating all of these different subject areas that I was interested in, somewhat passionate about, that I couldn't see some other field where I could do all of that. But as time went on, I'm no less in love with wine, but I'm a restaurateur first and foremost. So I came to fall in love with hospitality and service. Um, I didn't practice those things absolutely at my family's restaurant. Hospitality, yes. Service, not so much. Um, lady, go ahead a few years. Later, you'll tell me the difference. We'll get <laughs> absolutely. The... Um, but then we're back to the family business. Right. And again, family businesses are awesome. Family businesses suck. I found that my father and I, more often than not, were at each other's throats about, here's this young punk kid wanting to make changes to this restaurant that was 25 years of age and my father's like no we can't make these changes because we're going to piss off our existing and I got to a point where my mom sat me down and said you know what it's either you or your father and if I have to make a choice I'm choosing your father so time for me to go I felt it was not right to go to another restaurant in Toronto because it would hurt my father too much because of the prominence of our restaurant so I came to New York City and arrived in 1991 had the absolute pleasure of landing my first gig at Remy Restaurant. Got to work with Chris Cannon, one of the great GMs, operators, wine. Just an unbelievable dude who can do it all. Cook, wine, do the books, blah, blah, blah. Francesco Antonucci, Adam Tahani, and the Remy Restaurant. designer, Rest- the restaurant yeah, designer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that Good time, crew. I can't believe it, Remy Restaurant was voted the greatest Italian restaurant in America. So here's this punk kid from Toronto... I came in, got a job as a server. What year was this? 1991. 91. And I had to go home three months later because my um, grandfather was on his deathbed, and I did get to see him before he died. And it was one of those conversations, and I said, you know, something like, any advice? And he said, okay, three things. Move to New York permanently, get married, and move to Queens. Okay, I've done the first two. Queens. The Queens thing, we have no goddamn clue where that came from. <laughs> Maybe in those days. Yeah. Like but, Forest Hills or something. So I returned to New York, and I had to come back to Toronto within weeks because he did pass away. And when I came back uh, to the city after the funeral, I stopped by the restaurant to get my schedule. And lo and behold, they told me that one of the managers had been let go in my absence. Bingo. And, I, and I'm like, so how are you going fill, fill, to fill that position? And they looked at me. They knew my past, but I'm like, again, punk kid. This is New York City. You got the best of the best. You would never think of offering me this job, would you? And they did. With the caveat that I had to commit to New York City for a year. I only planned to be here for three months, go somewhere else for three months, go to Europe for a year, stage, and then go back to Toronto. You were still thinking that? Oh, yeah. When they I were... wanna, I, this was just a learning journey for me to one day go back to Toronto and not boot my father out of the restaurant, but take over the restaurant. But there was no talk of that when your grandfather passed no. away. Like, Paul, you no, got to no. come back. Well, we need you a little. Or... Well, he did say... Move to New York. Oh, right. He get pushed married. you away. He did not want me to right. come Right. He would have said it. Yeah. He said, we need you here. So I got the job, and I don't want to say the rest is history, but I was there for two and a half more years. I got to meet incredible people in the business because of the prominence of this restaurant. I left. I went to Boulay for 28 days, the greatest That's and the worst. That's a tough guy to work well, for. How was that? He was great because he was back of the house. I was front of the house. Front of the house, guys on the floor. Awesome management of the front of the house at Boulay. Holy shit, you got to be kidding me that this guy was in the hospitality industry. <laughs> Worst 28 days of my life, but I swear to God, every day that I'm on the floor 
overseeing an operation, I think back to that and promise myself that is absolutely not how you do this. Good, good lesson. I was, now, now, what year was that? That was 1993. The downtown scene that far down was still getting its sea legs, or it was. Established? I think it was fully formed. Boulay had opened in '85, yeah, '93. So it was a rare time. Boulay was, I believe, the most popular restaurant in Zagat. At the same right. time, they had the best food. Boulay was the shit. Yep. And I wanted to prove myself in a four-star dining joint. It only lasted 28 days. Only job I've ever walked out on. Because of them or you? You walked out? You had I, I had to walk out. I had checked myself into St. Vincent's. I was having fucking panic attacks. I couldn't <laughs> breathe. It was insane. That's but not it, good. I, I'm not going to put the blame wholly on their camp. It was my fault, too. I, again, a little bit of arrogance on my part. Yeah, but it's got to be the right fit, and you were feeling that, too. Yeah, and whatever. I relished those 28 days as hard as they were. I then went to Gotham and Gabriel's, opened up Judson Grill with Chris Cannon, and then in 95, I landed at Gramercy Tavern with Danny Meyer. So wait, just back up a little. So Chris leaves Remy to open Chris left Remy Judson. in 90, late 93 or so and convi- combined with the guys behind Gotham Bar and Grill and they opened up Judson Grill. So guys left Gotham, Chris left Remy. They- well, it was the ownership of Gotham. Uh, Jerry Kretschmer oh, okay. and a few others. I got you. They put the money up. I got you. Chris Rant, uh, was the front of the house uh, dude. Dan Brown was the chef. And it was going to... What those individuals, Kretschmer and crew, had done for Bobby Flay at Mesa Grill, Right. the goal was that they would do this for Chef Brown at Judson. Was Telepan ever the chef there? After Chef Brown right. left. There was another chef. And then eventually Telepan came there from Gotham. Right. And I think the combination of Telepan and uh, Chris made Judson Grill what it was. Uh, Good place. It and was a great place. It was great American food. It was Bobby Flay's it, there now, now that you brought his name. Our American. Yeah. It all comes Another around. Nice place. So you do that. You do Judson for how long? I was there for nine months. Nine months. Then what happens, you said? Well, I had a girlfriend in Toronto who was like, wait, you promised you were going to go to New York for three months. It's been four and a half years. Now, what are you doing? Going back and forth? She's flying in. You're flying back. Jesus, what a diss. She's a saint. Uh, She was taking the bus from Toronto to New York City late Friday night, staying for two days, taking the bus back home. I was such an asshole in every which way. But I was like, okay, so what am I doing? I'm spinning my wheels the Judson Grill experience for me was not awesome. It was all right to good. So I went back Was home. it not as good with Chris at Judson as it was at Remy? The, the overall business of Judson was not as great. We missed our mark with food and some other things. We got two stars, not three stars, back when stars mattered. Right. And it just wasn't what we at all hoped it would be. And so I went home uh, in Christmas of 94, 95, saw my family, saw my girlfriend, made a statement that, listen, I'm going to go back to New York for three months. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to make some cash, and I'm coming back to Toronto. This is it. Well, when I went back to New York in January of 95, I said, well, I need a quick job. Gramercy Tavern had just opened. I hear working for Danny Meyer is great. Uh, Steve Olson was the opening psalm. He was the fucking hero to all of us in the wine business. And I thought I could make great money. And I start working there, still with the goal, three months later, March, April, back to T.O. <laughs> but then I started having the time of my life. Now that's the spot. I fell in love with the restaurant industry again. And this whole world that Danny had created 
and it was awesome. Well, the first phone call I made was to my girlfriend, quickly the ex-girlfriend, saying I'm not coming back. Um, my parents were supportive of me staying. My family restaurant had closed by this time, so there was nothing for me to come back to. And I got was it a natural close? It ran its course, or it ran abrupt? its course. Thirty-two years okay. of formal dining For a restaurant. That's, that's, that's it, man. Yeah, yeah. and um, that was a server at Gramercy Tavern for two years, taking me up to ninety-seven, and it was the best job I'd ever had. I had a blast. The people there were great. It was Tom Clicu in the kitchen kicking ass with savory food. Claudia Fleming with the sweets. Uh, wow! An incredible run of beverage directors. Danny, like I couldn't imagine a better place. And then, lo and behold, they changed GMs, and a gentleman who had been overseeing Gotham Bar and Grill when I was there for a short period of time in 93 came in and took over. He knew of my background, and he said, why don't you become a manager here? We need someone. I'm like, no, 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 dude. I'm, I'm still not sure I'm a lifer for this business. I'm having too much fun. I'm making too much money. You know, I want to be a rock star. No responsibility. I, yeah, I, I bought a guitar. I want to learn to play guitar. Like, hey, why not? Wait, you didn't even know how to play? No, no, forget Jeez. But you can still be a rock star. Some plan. And, um, and then he was, he always had me in his sights in terms of this. And at the right time, he came to me and said, Paul, let's talk manager again. I said, okay, Nick, Nick Matone. If you can make me, if you can craft a position that would allow me to be the beverage director, the service director, and the AGM, I'll take it. That position did not exist. Uh, I said earlier I was a little bit arrogant. Now I'm really arrogant. And Nick was able to craft this role for me. And I accepted it joyfully because at that point I knew I'm now a lifer. And this became the best job I'd ever had. And I loved it. I got to touch Everything. Everything. And Danny gave us the freedom. Danny and Tom gave us the freedom to do whatever we wanted to do to exceed guests' expectations. And so back to, we spoke earlier about service hospitality. Difference. Uh, Danny's book, Setting the Table. Anyone who wants to get into this business, Great anyone book. who's in a guest-facing business, you got to buy this book. And Danny explains the difference between those two things using a theatrical analogy. Service is a monologue. Service is me, the server, telling you, the guest, what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it, and you have no say in the matter. It's black and white. It's that food comes down from the left, we clear from the right, all beverages from the right-hand side, this is my opening speech, this is my closing speech, blah, blah, blah. Guests may think that they influence service. They don't. That's fine. Hospitality, on the other hand, is a dialogue. Hospitality is you, the guest, telling me to serve your expectations and then it's me telling you how I'm going to fulfill those expectations and like every great conversation it happens verbally, physically emotionally sometimes psychically and to be a great conversationalist you need to be a great listener and what Danny taught us to do is how to become great listeners and in understanding the guest's expectations, we then also had the freedom to go out there and do whatever was necessary to exceed those expectations. It was awesome. I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do wine-wise in terms of crafting that program. Service-wise, we had a kick-ass team. You know, again, Tom and Claudia in the kitchen, Nick running. It was like an all-star team. Oh, my God. It was... There, there are a lot of great restaurants, a lot of great operators. 
I want to say, as you just said, it was an all-star team of people. It was insane. So just help me with the service and hospitality. The service is something you instill in your people. There's a whole formula to it. It's sort of set up when you walk into a restaurant. Isn't hospitality the first touch point? Like when a customer comes in and sits at the table, that's when the hospitality begins. I mean, the table set, the napkins are pressed, the water. The, is that the hospitality first kicks in and is followed by? I would say the hospitality. Well, I was going to say when you make the phone call to make a reservation, but now. All of that. That was so 15 years ago, right. phone calls. But when you make the reservation. Even if you use open table, there's got to be a relationship there that says, yeah, I want to go here, blah, blah, blah. So when you walk through the door, we hope that that first individual that you get to physically see and touch carries on whatever experience you had making the reservation. And that every other experience up until the moment you leave and through that moment carries on this same thread. And again, the service, Gramercy Tavern service, we never aim to have the best service. But it was the best service for Gramercy Tavern. Well, it's always been described as stealth. It's done really well. It's not, you know, too much. Everything is always taken care of. I mean, that's almost the best way to do it. You feel comfortable in that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I think there are things that we did that were obvious in terms of presentations of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. When we meze the table, when we put food down, when we cleared it. Yeah, you try to be in as inobtrusive as possible. Right. But, um, and it's an often used line in a lot of other places. You, we trained for service. We hired for hospitality. Train for service. Hire for hospitality. Hire for hospitality. You could teach anyone. Because hospitality is the dialogue. You need people. Well, it's ingrained in right. you. You're either a hospitality person or you're kind of not. Could, could you teach someone hospitality as a young adult? let's say 18 through 22, yeah. But if you're fully formed in your late 20s, 30s, and you don't live and breathe hospitality, not that you need to be in this business, but if you don't like to have those conversations, if you can't listen to what other people are telling you, I think it's pretty hard to teach that thing. I I agree. And so I don't think it's a lot of restaurants hire for hospitality, train for service. I think in Danny's places, once you get through the first two months of learning the service, the absolute focus thereafter every day is on how do we improve our hospitality? How do we become better conversationalists? Um, here are some more tools that we're giving you to be better conversationalists. All of these things. Danny never takes his foot off the pedal at any of his joints with any of his managers. And then at you know the pyramid at any of Danny's world is not, you know, typical setup of the pyramid from the top down it's inverted it's from the bottom up with danny on the bottom supporting the managers who then support the staff who he's then, famous for yeah. getting his job done through his people thinking about them as much as the customer because a smart happy good hospitality guy is going to serve the restaurant better yeah. than any place yeah listen I, I have to think there are some people out there who have maybe never been to his restaurant or met danny and you may think there's no way this dude is that good he can't be that no, much of a I preacher man and i will tell you I think he he's proved the real it. He, he's the real deal and when you get the man meet the man he exudes hospitality that's him all right so let's uh finish up so you do gramercy tavern 
for how long was your tenure there? Uh, I was there totally from 95 to 02, a ma- server for two years, manager for five. Now, when we talk about James Beard's awards, you know, a chef can get it individually. But in your, during your tenure there, mm-hmm. you have to take some credit for the fact that the restaurant received a couple of James Beard awards the, under your watch. So I'm not putting it all on you, but you got to take some of the... I was part of the team that got a James Beard Award for Best Service. And as the service director, you can say, okay, uh, we'll tip our hats to you, Paul. And then for beverage service. Which is a great validation to you because that's an important thing to you. All right. So eventually you leave there and you hook up with a guy that you knew, Marco Canora. And I'll set you up by just saying the name. You get involved with him with a place called Hearth. Yepper. You know, I I had gotten to the point in my career at Gramercy Tavern that I had to take the next step, which was to be an owner. My first job was as a bloody owner, and there was that internal conversation of, do I... I could remain at Gramercy Tavern. I'd still be there today. It was... I couldn't imagine a better joint. Right. But that thing started happening inside me about Paul... You need to do this on your own. So I gave my notice, and I left on October 1st, 2002, with no safety net. I hadn't done a goddamn thing to forward this dream of mine, but I knew... Could work to your benefit. Yeah, I I could have remained at Gramercy Tavern while pursuing this, but then I didn't feel that I would have the full motivation. So I quit with nothing. And the only thing that was in front of me was, Paul, you need to open a goddamn restaurant. It was my wife who told me that the uh, chef de cuisine of Kraft Restaurant, Marco Canora, Tom had, while still the chef owner of Gramercy, had opened Kraft Restaurant in 2001, and he had pulled a few people from Gramercy Tavern, Marco Canora, my wife, now Katie Greco, to be the chef de cuisine and GM, respectively. And Katie, and working closely with Marco Kraft, knew that he wanted to open his own joint one day. She put the two of us together, and along comes Hearth Restaurant opening in November of 2003. 2003 in the East Village. Yep. What was it, 11? 12th and 1st. 12th. And East Village is very happening now. What was going on then? Uh, it was different. Let's say there was some stuff on Avenue A that was good okay, uh, and cool. Uh First Avenue, not so much. Second Avenue, you know, Bar Veloce had opened in the late 90s. There were some things on second, but First Avenue was a wasteland really? of stuff for the most part. Really? And we chose it because of the rent. And the, some potential investors who did become investors, some didn't. So that's, that's an odd location. We're like, listen, it's New York <laughs> City, people will travel for food and drink. So we're like, we never thought twice about it. And we opened up, and it was it was what it was. It was so you had great. A, you had a run for how long there? Well, the the joint's still open. Right. I would you say you and Marco together. Yeah, listen, so explain we, the run yeah, and your exit. We um, it, listen, we were nominated for James Beard Best New Restaurant of the Year when that nomination came through in the spring of two thousand and four. It's like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. Like, there's no way this restaurant... But I think because of Marco, because of me, friends out there, like... Well, it, you it had was, the hospitality and service thing. You had the we, wine we had the thing down. Thing. Marco, yeah. Yeah, his you know, was zen by then. Yeah. So you had it all going. So I... Uh, the restaurant was good to very good. It wasn't 
great for a variety of reasons. Um, and so we had a we, we were going along doing our stuff. We uh, dialogue came up to open up in Midtown a restaurant called Insieme on Seventh Avenue, Michelangelo, Michelangelo right. Hotel, and that was Hearth was not a full on Italian restaurant. We Mark was of Italian extraction. I'm Italian extraction. We didn't want to do Italian food for fear that we would be locked into a corner. We wanted to do an American restaurant, Hearth. And it was cool and good. And then the opportunity came to do a full-on Italian restaurant called Insieme. Marco and I have a tendency to choose names that people couldn't bloody well pronounce easily. (laughs) And I think Insieme, while it lasted for maybe two years because it ran full on into the financial crisis of 2009, was off the hook. Marco's cooking Lehman there. Brothers was right around oh, the corner. Dude, it was 100 <laughs> feet away. Right? Tough spot. You know, even though you're not in the restaurant business out there, you might not be. Here's a little fact. In January of 2009, <laughs> the profit and loss statement of NCMA showed a 95% labor cost. Oh, my God. Because it was a union hotel. That left five cents to buy all the food, the wine. the pl- oh, It was boy. just it, it was an utter disaster. So we left that, go back to uh, Hearth Restaurant, back to the East Village where we were comfortable. Terroir had opened up in 2008. The first one was small. It was so a Terroir box. was you and Marco opened yep. a wine bar. There was no long-held desire. Was it on right? My part. It was on the block next it door? Was 80 feet away. Right. Yeah, uh, we were there one day at Hearth at uh, 12th and 1st, knock on the door, open it. Gentleman says, uh, you two look very successful here. Uh, I've got a joint down the place down the street. Do you want to come and have a look? We're like, who are you? He says, well, I own this building. Bike shop's leaving. Do you guys want to come and do something? We walked down. It was 1,800 square foot space. We're like, there's no way. We're doing the project in Midtown. There's no way. You know, maybe if it was a third the size, we would ponder it. So we walk away. Three months later, knock on the door. Same guy again. He's like, I did it. You did what? Well, I made it a third the size. Like, oh, shit, man. So we go back and look. 550 square feet, all in. And it was $2,000 rent. Looking at this thing going, okay, well, if we can utilize Hearth for food production, piggyback on their, the liquor license... We could do something here. This should be a no-brainer, especially with $2,000 a month rent. The size of the space mandated minimal labor. This could actually be something. What do we do? I guess we could do a wine bar. Again, I had no lifelong desire to do a wine bar. It's just that the space happened. It was like, what do we do? Wine the, bar. The best use of the space. Yeah. Would have been. And I would have to say the creation of Terroir was one of the greatest times in my life. A friend and partner uh, in Terroir, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Solomon, who's responsible for all the graphics and helps. Uh, the way I describe my relationship with Solomon is that uh, I fill the pot with water, I put it on the stove, I turn the stove on, and Solomon walks by and turns it up to 11. <laughs> and um, so late night session sitting around, the name came rather easily. I can't say it was well-received because, one, a lot of people couldn't pronounce it. Oh. Terroir became blah, terrier, right. terror, blah, blah, terror. blah. Yeah. And, um, and then everything else from there, i.e., looking at my, my wife and I had two little children by this time. I'm looking at my son who's wearing a Che Guevara shirt, and I'm looking at that going, terrorist, terrorist, huh, terroir. So we came up with these lines of uh, T-shirts that 
paid homage to our favorite winemakers who were uber-focused on terroir, Barlow Mascarello being the first. We, wa- we didn't just want to serve wine. We knew we could do that. And it wasn't just about Marco's food. It was kick-ass fucking food. His veal ricotta meatballs are off the hook, plus, plus, plus. It was about celebrating this world of wine in a manner. Well, hold on there, because I want to come back towards the end of the show. Gotcha. And we'll spend some time with terroir. Um, let's finish up the journey. So... The Tawar bar next to the down the block from the restaurant opened when? Oh eight. Oh eight. So we're talking oh eight. Um you eventually you and Marco parted ways what year? Eleven? December thirty first, two thousand and fifteen. Fifteen. Oh, okay. do, forgive me, two thousand December thirty first, two thousand fourteen. And not to get into it, but just a natural time to leave. Yeah, listen, um partnerships, be they personal, be they professional especially in our business, for each of us, married with two kids, we saw each other more than we did our spouses and our kids. Pretty good run, though. Sorry? Pretty good run. Yeah, you know, we were together for 12 years. It certainly had its highs, and it unfortunately had its lows. What I think promised great success for us was that we were both single-minded, both, dare I say, talented at what we brought to the table, but neither of us was willing to back down when there was a situation where two competing, you know, a result had to be arrived at with two competing ways of getting there. And neither of us was willing to say, you know what? Okay, it's your turn. You're right this time. No, right. we just went toe-to-toe. I'm surprised it lasted that long. <laughs> we, and it's, I, I think if Marco was here, <laughs> the most hilarious from this distance, but at the time, you've got to be bloody well kidding me, Battle Royale was over a plate of cookies. Like trivial. I'm just going to throw that out there. Trivial nonsense. It's, yeah, <laughs> it was. And so, you know, Marco still for me remains one of the greatest cooks in this city. Yes, he's a chef owner and I respect that. But as a cook, as someone who puts together ingredients on a plate where everything matters, I think Marco Canora is unrivaled. And Stan Hearth is better today because of Marco's single mind, yeah. a, single-minded attitude towards very, everything he does there. It's awesome. Very highly regarded. Um, all right. So we're going to come back to Tawar in a couple minutes. But let's talk about wine a little. And let's talk about the business. Um, I, I guess it's fair to say you've been in the business long enough, you know, where people sort of consider you an elder statesman. You know, look what it's come to. I'm this old radio host and you're the elder statesman. Tell me about sort of that unofficial role and all the changes, you know, that you've seen happen. I mean, when you jumped in the business, you weren't doing wine exclusively. There were maybe six sommeliers in the city at some point. Now there's six in one rest. I mean, how how have you seen that part of the business change? Well, when I arrived in the city in 1991, I don't even think there were five restaurants that had an absolute sommelier on the floor whose sole responsibility was wine. It turned out it would not that it long ago. to be a manager who doubled as a wine buyer. Chris Cannon being an example of that. He was the GM wine buyer. Okay, good. Um, but I'll go back to something you brought up earlier, that while wine is the thing that got me into this and satisfied this incredible yearning for knowledge and experience, I'm a restaurateur first and foremost. I am first and foremost a hospitality dude. I live and breathe hospitality. I live and breathe searching out opportunities for conversation with people. My forte may be wine, but the way I look at wine 
It's an opportunity to have a conversation with someone. It is a vehicle for conversation. So I love this industry, period, amen. That's why still today, I've been doing this for 30 years, when I go to work, I'm not going to work. I'm going to terroir. I get to do the shit that I love to do every single day of the week, every moment of the day. So I'm no more energized today or less energized than I was when I started this. I still have the vim and vigor as I did when I was at Gramercy Tavern, when I was at Remy, when I was at my family restaurant trying to have conversations, search out new shit, learn and be a better practitioner of service and hospitality. Well, I think you hit hit it kind of on the nose because a lot of the wine people today are just wine people. You were pretty eloquent in describing how you came through the business and just now how important hospitality is. Some people just give a shit about wine. Listen, I'm not... You know, to you, it's the whole, it's the whole package. Listen, you know, when you looked at the wine bar, it wasn't just wine bar. It was an opportunity to do all of that stuff at that place. Yeah, it was another venue to have conversations with people. Right. Maybe more conversations about wine than food, but it was all conversations about stuff. I'm not going to diminish anyone's success that they have achieved at any point in their life. I'm not an ageist. And, but having said that, it, it was, I think, good in the so-called old days that there were years that you had to put in crafting, uh, applying your craft, that's a better way of stating it, before you could achieve these things. To become an MS, Master Sommelier, back in the 80s and 90s, I don't think there was there were very few people who achieved that in their 20s. Right. Because I don't think any of us thought you could even do that. Right. You had to apprentice, so to speak. Now, there are a lot more highly motivated, highly achieved Psalms who are doing great things. And again, I'm not going to diminish any of those right. people or that success. I love it. More people in this business doing that. I just wish we weren't so just wine focused or just food focused or just that as Danny always did and taught me oh so well. It's the entirety of this thing. I will say to any aspiring restaurant owner out there, operator, it is one of the coolest industries there is because you just don't get to be a food guy or girl, uh, a wine person, a service person, a hospitality person. You get to influence design, architecture, uh, sound, visuals, flowers. I mean, all of these different disciplines can be exercised by you, the restaurant owner. I love all of that shit. And yeah. I wish more of us recognize that we're just but a spoke on a bigger Wheel as it relates to wine. There's a great master psalm out there named Richard Betts, and he considers yeah. Well, yeah, based out of there now, doing a lot of different things. He considers wine to be a grocery. That wine is a condiment to food. And yes, I guess I've done enough things that people think I'm a wine dude first and foremost. No, wine makes food taste better. I can't imagine having a glass of grape juice without food by my side. They go together. I, I agree. So let's talk about that a little. We're talking to Paul Greco. Paul is the general and manager of Terroir Wine Bar in Tribeca. A lot of your peers came up studying French wine, Burgundy, you know, is a big thing. Ironically, you know, they're big Francophiles when it comes to wine. You spent your sort of wine youth in Italy, and you become this Riesling guy. 
Tell me how we got there, and then let's talk about Riesling a little. I am oh so thankful that my first country of study for wine was Italy, because as much as you may think, one may think that Germany screwed up with all of these flowery labels and long names, I don't know. Italy is by far the most confusing wine country on the planet Earth. When you look at an Italian wine label and you think you identify the name, you have no clue if it's the name of a grape. A vineyard, True. a town, a person, you go a saint, the town dog. You have no idea where the hell it's grown. Nothing. Holy shit. And so I grew up True. obsessed about learning all of this stuff. So when I finally expanded out of this Italian wine world, it all seemed so bloody easy to me. And growing up in Toronto, obviously, with a, a liquor control board of Ontario, which is very much like Pennsylvania. Right. We struggled to get good juice right. up there. And so coming to New York was like the Wild West. And coupled with the fact that the wine world was relatively smaller back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was easier to learn. Now it's truly a wine world out there that Chilean juice is just as legitimate as Italian juice. South African juice is just as legitimate as German or Canada. It's a world of wine. And all I beg people to do is explore the entirety of the thing. I will couple my love of wine back to my early years when, for whatever reason, it's not a single experience, it's just in my DNA, I love to fight the good fight for those things or people that don't get their proper due. Well, that's... Be it music, be it art, be it whatever. So I apply that mindset... Let's, to wine. Let's stay with wine on that. Cool. So, so was Riesling so under that? Riesling. Listen, if we had a room full of Psalms here and you asked 10 of them, what's your favorite grape? At least five are going to say Riesling. Half? At least. Pretty good consensus. The other half may say Pinot. And then when you say, what's your second favorite? Then they're going to flip. So every Psalm loves Riesling, loves it for its incredible acidity, loves it for its potential presence of residual sugar reveres it for its absolute balance. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but we have done a shite job of having these conversations of hospitality with our guests about Riesling. We think that just because we put it on the list, it should sell itself. That I show my mark as a great song because I put Riesling. No, dude. Good point, madame. You have to get out there and fight the goddamn fight because... I recognize this world of wine is so big. And so as you begin to approach it, you're like, God damn, how do I figure this stuff out? And you know what? One day I had a glass of Riesling and it just happened to have some residual sugar. So it was sweet. You know what? I don't like sweet wines. So all Rieslings thereafter are sweet. And, I do, and so when I think about wine, I don't have to think about Riesling anymore. That's the perception and so, in America too, or was. Listen. Sweet. Yeah. And so... And we know it's not. Right. So I took it upon myself to actively engage in those things. But when I was at Gramercy Tavern, if I had 20 wines by the glass and I put three Rieslings on there, you will come in or a guest will come in and look at that and say, holy Lord, someone here must really love Riesling. But I still gave you 17 opportunities. But other restaurants didn't even have three, right? I mean, that was sort of a bold yeah, move. Yeah, Riesling by the glass was relatively rare then. Right. It's become more commonplace. So... We'll jump ahead to terroir again. Again, minimal rent, low staff. I said, you know what? This is my sandbox. 
550 square feet. When we were kids, there were few better places than a sandbox. Your toys, your friends, your rules. If you don't like them, get the fuck out of my sandbox. So I looked at it as the opportunity. Well, Paul, for all of these conversations about Riesling, maybe this is the time. So we opened up in the spring of 08. I didn't harbor this long-held belief of summer of Riesling, summer of Riesling, summer of Riesling. All right, wait, wait, wait. Hold that thought, because we have to take a break. You have to... Am I going to drink some Riesling? Yes. No, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, finish. We're going to morph into terroir, which very much is summer of Riesling. Um, we're going to talk about what's going on in terroir, some other things. Then we'll do the wine list. Then we'll taste a little wine. So we're sitting here with Paul Greco from Terroir. We'll be back. We're going to subject to the subject Paul to the wine list. We're going to finish up with uh, Terroir, and we'll taste a little wine. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today to southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. All right, we're back. We're back with Paul Greco. Paul Greco is the uh, proprietor of Terroir Wine Bar down in Tribeca. I'll get you all the addresses and everything. And not too far ahead, Paul's going to open up the terroir on the High Line, which is an exciting place. So Paul and I were talking about Riesling. We were talking about his wine bar, Terroir, and that it became a sandbox and a platform for him to showcase Riesling because... (laughs) Because, well, listen, I think, uh, I don't know how everyone defines greatness in wine. I think the criteria might include things like complexity, balance, delicacy, ability to age, ability to express place, and yumminess. And of those six things, yumminess bloody well rules. And then the question should be, well, how do you define yummy? To me, and this applies to every single wine that I buy from my wine bar, one sip should lead to a second sip, one glass should lead to a second glass, one bottle should lead to a second bottle. If I do not want to continue to drink a wine, regardless of what's on the label, regardless of the price, regardless of whatever, it ain't bloody well yummy. So with a lot of wines, I find them to be yummy, but Riesling especially. And then it 
brings to the table for me an intellectual thing. It brings this in-your-face confrontational thing like, what do you mean you don't drink recently because you <laughs> think it's always bloody sweet? And we, we're, we're idiots at terroir. I tell you technical details, which are absolutely absurd. What do you need to know the residual sugar and the total acidity? How do I put those in perspective? But I put them on the wine by the glass list because I'm looking for more opportunities for conversation. We have 15 Rieslings by the glass. I have the whole panoply of these things. And if you only drink dry, I'm going to give you dry. So let, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. We talked about it earlier that people have this perception of Riesling. You know, there's definitely a residual sweetness. Just let's do a little lesson quick on Riesling because there are different types of Rieslings. And I'm sure you've served all of them, but a majority of what you serve falls into a few areas. So just walk me through Riesling quickly because I can't pronounce any of it. Riesling is no more inherently sweet than any other grape or wine that, that you should be ever known. had. Right. But Riesling can have residual sugar. And when it does, it is offset by incredible acidity. That is the balance. Which is great for food. And- yeah, but, you know, I hate to use food as a crutch for wine, even though a few moments ago I said wine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but because listen, 60% of wine in this country is consumed standing up by itself at a bar or cocktail party. So we do it anyway. But anyway, so, so I'm not saying that Riesling is the greatest grape. All I'm trying to say is Riesling is one of. It's just as great in terms of complexity, balance, delicacy, right. blah, 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 as all of these other things that you love. But it's the only grape that can play across this incredible playing field from bone dry to off dry to medium sweet to fully sweet. So whatever mood you're in, whatever time of day, Riesling can do that. Yes, when you go to a restaurant and you order Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay, you never have to think, oh, you know what? I'll have a Chardonnay, but please make it a dry one. No, Riesling, all of these, like, holy shit, I ordered Riesling. Are they going to bring me a sweet one? And I'll... Yes, there have to be a few other statements and or questions involved. But the journey that this thing is going to take you on, whether you focus on Germany, Austria, Alsace, New York State, Oregon, Washington, Australia, wherever Riesling has grown, it is a thrilling ride that you need a seatbelt attached so, for. So one of the things that you point out is the diversity, but you also have to communicate and convey to your servers, because if you don't want a sweeter Riesling, if you want a drier, just say that. And Riesling offers the range, you know, whether it's a cabinet or a dessert wine or whatever. True? Listen, I'm the first one to say that this world of wine is so goddamn confusing. <laughs> and the vocabulary is confusing, because if you say to me, Paul, I want a fruit-driven wine that's medium weight, and I bring you what I believe to be fruit-driven medium weight, you're going to look at and say, holy shit, this is light, and there's no fruit at all. It's all like... So the vocabulary sucks in our business. So you know what? I don't talk about the vocabulary. I say, listen, if you could have any wine tonight, what would it be? And what's your budget? And when you give me those answers, That's I it. know it. Then, you know what? I get to do my job because I know all that I have. And if you say, you know what? I once had this New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that rocked my world and it cost about $35 retail. I know absolutely that you want dry, 
You want high-tone fruit on the nose. You're willing to have a good dollop of acidity, and I know your budget. So whether I do bring you a dry Riesling from Austria, let's say, or some other white wine from somewhere on the planet Earth, it's going to meet those criteria. And my goal, I apologize to our listeners, is not to bring you what you want. I want to take you on these journeys. So that may go against hospitality. Well, there's a uh, honest intention there. But, is- but I, I hope at the end of the day that if I'm going to bring you down from hospitality, like, who is this dude? He's not giving me what the hell I want. My, my challenge then is to bring you back up and exceed those expectations. And at the same time, you can have a glass of good juice. You're going to learn a little bit. You've gone on this journey. It's the value add. I hope to God we succeed more than we fail at terroir. Our opening slogan is your weekly wine journey. You go into uh, terroir and you'll have a nightly journey. All right, let's cover two other things. Then I want to do the wine list with you. One thing we talked about was the summer of Riesling, which I cut you off. So I want you to come back to that. And I've been into uh, terroirs and the wine list, which you'll talk to me, is more of a storybook than a wine list and the thinking behind that. So... I I did interrupt you, but get back into that mojo of the Summer of Riesling and why and what. Listen, Summer of Riesling is a full-throttled, technicolor journey into the world of Riesling. The belief at the beginning was that if I put a few Rieslings on a broader wine by the glass list, you had other choices than just having Riesling. And you know what? If I was going to make a statement here, I couldn't give you a choice. So on June 21st, first day of summer, 2008... Every single white wine by the glass at Terroir in the East Village was Riesling and only Riesling. Guests hated it. Staff hated it. My partner hated it. You want to know why Marco and I split up? I'd say <laughs> Riesling is about 51% that was the straw, of that. Right? Investors hated it. The whole thing. But we didn't close because $2,000 a month rent. And so we and people like, okay, summer ends on September 1st. Thank God. No more. Like, no, summer ends on September 21st. 94 days of full, unabashed Riesling love. And the great thing about Riesling in the world of, for every style of white wine that you love, excluding oak influence, Riesling can do it. So I wasn't afraid. And if we were good at what we did, I would get you at least to just taste this goddamn wine. And you know what? You might like it. And that was it. So every year since, for 94 days every summer, we celebrate the Riesling grape and wine. So a few things. Did other establishments or restaurants participate in the idea? 2008, 2009, only Terroir. 2010, we opened Terroir Tribeca. I did it there. And then all of a sudden, now two joints were doing it. And the press is like, holy shit, this must be something. So then people started to write about it. And eventually, we got some friends involved. And in 2013... 500 restaurants around the country participated in this summer of Riesling journey. No one ever did. And I never asked anyone to do what I did. Right. Just, but a big dose of Riesling. Yeah. You know, from June. And I I think if you ask me, so what, so what is different today? It's not that maybe not that people are drinking more Riesling It's that the conversation of Riesling is easier. At least guests are willing to give it a shot. Right. And that's all I ask. So you, you, you are responsible for force-feeding Riesling down <laughs> many people who don't regret it now. All right. Talk to me about the wine list. It's, it's it, visually, 
It's not your typical wine list. And content-wise, certainly you're going to see a lot of Riesling. What's the thinking into the wine list content and a lot of stories? Listen, I think when every beverage director gets their, an opportunity to create their own list, as I did when I was at Hearth, because as much as freedom as I had at Gramercy, it was still Danny's restaurant. I could only go so far. But at Hearth, it was like, okay, now what am I going to do differently than I've ever done before? Well, wine list. It's exactly that. A list of wines. And a list of wines is fucking boring as shit. True. I don't want. And why I love wine, once again, is everything surrounding it. All the stories, the people, the places, the blah, blah, blah. So I want to tell those stories. So let's use the wine list to be a story Brilliant. book. So that's when I started writing a ton of shit. In getting together with Stephen Solomon, he provided the graphic motif to accompany my stories, and it took off from there. Listen, I know that people, when they open up the terroir list, are <laughs> they're pissed off that they have to read all of this shit to find a good glass of, or bottle of wine. But there are a lot of people who love it, because my goal in crafting the terroir list, three things. First thing, you chuckle. Second, you learn. Third, you buy something. And I think we do achieve those things. I think that's a perfect vehicle to get people to do that um all right i want i want to subject you to our wine list our wine list is a bunch of questions we pretty much ask the same questions every week and our listeners are curious about your take on all of this stuff so first question is what are you drinking now let's, coffee let's put riesling <laughs> aside and non-alcoholic beverages are there any wines beers ciders is there anything you've been sort of going back to more than a few times in the last weeks or months i'm not beholden to a single grape a single wine a single region any of that every day i get up and i'm in a beautiful position that people distributors incredible salespeople that work the streets of new york i have an easy job they do the heavy lifting they bring me cool juice from all over the planet and i revel in it so the answer is everything everything all right Favorite wine and food pairing. We sort of got into this before, but you got to come up with something. What do you, what have you gone back to? Oh, damn it. Um, can I say a cabinet Riesling from the Mosul River Valley and my Raisin Bran at 10 o'clock in the morning? It's funny you say that. I had Gary Vaynerchuk on, and he said an Alsatian wine and Captain Crunch. <laughs> so you're not totally mad. You're in good company. Um Talk to me besides terroir about a favorite wine restaurant and our bar. Who, who else out there is doing it? Listen, I think where we're at right now at Roberta's, food, beverage, every, everything works here in a seamless fashion. Why, great wine lists don't have to be thousands of listings. They can be 100 items as long as everything is well chosen to go with the food, the thing. And so... You know, what, what I'm looking at, this incredible pizza, everything going on up there, this for me is pretty damn great. As good as everything. Um, Hugh Crickmore, who does the wine here, he replaced Amanda Smeltz, you know, has changed things around, and he's very keyed into interesting stuff and curating the list. Listen, I will say of my patriots out there, my compatriots in New York City, we have it so bloody easy. The other markets around this country, those wine people have to work their asses off to put together. We Listen, we have 55,000 different wines in New York City to buy. We can get up in the morning and get whatever the hell we want. It's crazy. Most other places don't have it. It's crazy. All right. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? 
is there a wine to you that was a birth date wine or the one that sort of changed your thinking on something? Uh, the wine that moved me, and it's more because of the individual who oversees it, is uh, Shadow Musar. And the gentleman I'm referring Serge. to is Serge Hoshar, who passed away a few years ago. But he is the only individual that made me think differently about wine. So we're talking about, you know, I asked Paul, favorite all-time wine. So Paul gave me a winemaker and a wine. And it turns out the winemaker was a friend. But Paul, tell people where Serge made his wine. The, uh, the Hoshar family is in Lebanon. Uh, they're based out of Beirut. They grow the grapes in the Becca Valley. Uh, and it is... What type of wines? They make red. white, they make red. The red grapes are Sanso, uh, Carignan, and Cabernet, three grapes you may have heard about in either Bordeaux or Rhone wines, sure. etc. cetera. One third each. But that wine is not about the grapes. It's about the place. It's about the family. It's about history. And when you sat down, if you could have sat down and tasted with Serge, he... He didn't want the flavor descriptions, the aromatic taste. He just wanted to know how the wine made you feel. Did it make you feel good? Did it make you feel thoughtful? Did it make you feel sad? That's the shit. Serge was able to look at wine in a manner that I only could aspire to one day in my career. I think he touched you in a lot of ways. So that's Chateau... Musar, M-U-S-A-R. It's made in Lebanon. Serge, not too long ago, passed away, but the winery and the tradition... Everything's still going on, his father, brother, etc. Is it accessible? I mean, New York's not the hardest place to get wine. Oh, Musar is distributed in all 50 states. And in New York, better wine should have it. So, you know, Paul is right about that. You know, if you want to try something that you've never had, you should look for a Chateau Musar. All right. Best wine under or around 15 bucks. My son's 27. He's going to a dinner party. He's bringing three bottles of wine. What's he buying? I need a red and a white. 15 bucks-ish. Oh, Jesus. Okay, people out there, can I beg you to do something? Uh Uh-oh. Can I beg you to go to your local wine store, establish trust with one of the people who work in there, put down your 15 bucks on the counter, tell that individual wines that you've had at various points in your life that made you feel something and say, listen, get me something like those that's less than 15 bucks, get it. Go party, drink it, and whether you like it or not, take it as a learning moment and then continue to increase that knowledge. Never drink the same wine twice. It's a world of wine. Explore it. So Paul didn't come up with a red or a white, which I'm totally fine with, but came up with probably the most logical strategy I mean, to engage and endear yourself with your wine guy, to communicate to him what you want, what you like, price points, I think Paul's right. You're going to stumble on a lot of interesting stuff. All right, Paul, that was the wine list. Good job. Um, When do we get to drink some wine? For you, this wine list was a little pedestrian, you know? (laughs) I mean, everyone... I should have put in some ringers, but I'm happy to answer them. All right. Our last segment of the show is the weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we'll taste with Paul a Riesling from Germany. It's a 2013 Von Hovel 
Schwarzhofberg SAR is S A A R SAR. Yeah, exactly. SAR Riesling Cabinet. Tell people what a cabinet is. It's a can classic. I tell you? Can I say I'm just going to love this goddamn wine right now? I don't even have to drink the goddamn thing. It's bubbling is that? So all listen, right? I, 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 listen. I find German Riesling to be bloody glorious because unlike the vast majority of other Riesling areas, they do all the styles. But everything the Germans do is not great, one of which is their classification system. It's confusing as all shit. The only thing you need to remember out of all of this, don't worry about the verbiage on the label or the flowery pictures, all of that shit. If you want to know if a wine is dry or sweet, just look at the alcohol. The lower the alcohol, the more residual sugar, the sweeter the wine. The higher the alcohol, dry. If your Riesling is going to be 12 degrees alcohol or higher, dry. Anything less than that, and listen, German Rieslings can get down to 7.5% wow. alcohol are going to be sweet. But listen, people, 7.5% alcohol. You've had beer with more alcohol than that. That's why I drink this shit with my breakfast cereal. So 12% if you're looking dry. You got, you got, look, look at the alcohol it's, it's, It is sort of a line in the sand. It's at least going to be dry. Okay. All right. So let's... Uh Let's uh, pick this wine up. Let's look at the color, the nose. We'll give it a little sip. This is a 2013, not, you got it, not the best year, not the best vintage. In, uh, let's listen, not fixate can, can we, on that. Listen, can we all agree that we're not going to pay attention to vintages anymore? Thank you. Fuck off, vintages. That's uh, it. Un- unless all of us have a ton of money out there where we're buying wine for investment that we're going to either sell many years down the line or our children are going to drink on their 21st birthday. Screw vintages. Screw wine, the vintage. Winemaking has gotten much better. So even when Mother Nature does not shine upon vintners, they can still craft something good. All right. So, so buy what you like. I'm I'm all for that. All right, so let's look at the color. Is it a traditional uh, Riesling color? It's kind of a straw, pale gold. It's good. Good yellow. A little bit of green hue, slight golden hue to it. Green there's, and gold, good. Yep. There's a, Talk to me about the nose. <sighs> Can I just nose this shit all day? Everything is in you here. you got to calm down. Yeah, I know. I'm getting excited <laughs> over here. I don't know if it's all the coffee or the Riesling now. But... The, the the panoply of fruits that come into play with Riesling, everything from apples, think the perfect Granny Smith apple, not just on aromatics, but on texture too, that little dollop of sweetness followed by that incredible crunch of acidity. Think of citrus fruits, oranges, lemons, limes. Think of Bosque pear. Think potentially of cherries. Think of apricots and peaches. I get apricots. I get a little honey. Yeah. It can be a little bit honeyed, but we take those sweet aromatics and we our brain tells us, oh, it's going to taste sweet. No, these are just aromatics. And then on the palate, it tastes a little... Uh... Now, if we believe physiology... Give me the mouthfeel. Is it medium body, medium to light? I would say this is light. Light on the mouthfeel? Yeah. Okay. Remember, we taste sweetness on the tip of our tongue, sour on the sides. So what we do with wine, as we do with people, first impressions count the most. Mistake. You do get a little dollop of sugar on the tip of the tongue. The acid kicks in after that. The wine starts off dry, finishes dry. Again, I'm a Canadian. I wanted to be two things when I was growing up, a hockey player 
or Zamboni driver? Ain't going to be a hockey player. Zamboni driver? Maybe. Could happen. Maybe. I love Zambonis. What does Zamboni does? It goes out on the ice, cleans off the old ice, lays down a new sheet of ice so we can play a brand new game of hockey. Acid is your friend. Acid is the Zamboni of wine. It cleans the palate. It picks up. No more sweetness in this thing. It goes long. I've been prattling on here for 60 seconds. This wine, as light as it is, as low in alcohol, is still there. You're still feeling this thing. This is power. Power is not quantitative. Power is qualitative. And this thing reeks of power, of complexity, really? of delicacy. On and on we go. And what's the alcohol in this thing? Low, 7.5. God damn it, surprised. people. Listen, you can finish work, pick up a bottle of this, crack it open, have a glass or two, still talk to your spouse, cook dinner for your kids, put the kids to bed, read them a story, hammered. and still go on about your night. I took a couple things about this wine I want to ask you. I poured it, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes before we drank it. There were bubbles in it. Mm-hmm. Why the bubbles? You don't see that in every, you know, Chablis or Chardonnay. It's going to blow off. Listen. But why? Fermentation is the conversion of sugar and yeast into alcohol and CO2. Does that have something to do with the 7.5% alcohol? Well, yeah. If we, don't fer- if, a- we, if we don't ferment all the sugar out, then we get lower alcohol. Direct correlation between that okay. stuff. In this case, they do give wines with a degree of residual sugar a blast of sulfur. So those bubbles in there are a result of that sulfur. And no reason to be concerned. There is no concern at all. When you put this in your palate, it's not bubbly. Well, see, I want you to tell my listeners, acidity, when you taste or feel acidity, can you relate that to any sense of effervescence, which could be perceived as bubbly? I guess bubbles can have a cleansing effect as acidity does, but you don't taste bubbles. You no. feel bubbles. Not like champagne. You taste but you acidity. Fe- okay, so that's what it is. It's taste-, taste versus touch. And we got to separate that stuff out. Remember, smell plus taste equals flavor. And we tend to confuse a lot of this stuff. Right. Wine has got something to say to you. Again, conversations. We just have to pay attention to all of this shit. That's right. All right. So I know you hate this question, but I'm going to make you ask, answer it. What, what would you pair this wine with? What, what, because it is the lower alcohol, a little of the sweetness, good acidity. What's a good, is it cheese? Listen, I think at this, at this time of the year, all of the spring vegetables, the, the peas, the ramps, all of that Good stuff. Call. That are coming. A perfect salad. You think you don't, can't match wine with salad? What in the salad are you playing off of? The vinaigrette. It's acidity. This wine has good acidity. The two acids balance each other out. Um, That's oysters. Deep. Oysters come to the table with salt. This briny quality Work, works with salt, acid, and sweet. Rock and frickin' roll. Get some ceviche. Again, a little acid in there. Right. Rock and roll. Citrus acid. Get some sushi, some sashimi. Get a lightly, uh, oh, you know what? I'm into perfectly roasted chicken. And a perfectly roasted chicken with a caramelized skin that's going to give you a sweet impression. The meat inside is succulent and juicy with this. the Again, acid 
cleans the palate. You can have a bite of food, a sip of wine, and this rotation keeps going. You may not think you are an acid hound, but if you love wine and food together, you are an acid town, and nothing comes to the table with this level of acidity like Riesling. But I also think the fact that you brought it to people's attention, and now when they drink, being aware of this... That will evolve with them, and I think, you know, that's a very cool thing. All right, so this particular wine, do we like it? Love it? Good? Okay? Uh, I know you can't see me, but I've got 10 thumbs up right now. This you really thing rocks like this, huh? and rolls. It's perfect. All right, so this is the Von Hovel, so it's a small V-O-N, capital H-O-V-L. It's a Schwarz Hofburg Saar region, which is, I think, part of the Moselle. Uh, Riesling, and it's a cabinet. This wine retails for around 22 to 25 bucks. So not, you know, super cheap, not expensive. But, you know, as Paul said, it's holding up. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, Schars Hofburg is one of the greatest vineyard areas on the planet Earth. Roughly a 60-degree slope. Really? I don't know where everyone works, but chances are we work in an office with a zero-degree slope. The coffee doesn't slide off your desk. Imagine going to work every day, 60-degree slope. There is not a price you should be able to pay to afford this wine, and it's only in the low 20s. Everyone should... There Turn off the radio, run out their door to the local wine shop, and get this goddamn bottle of wine. There you go. If Paul's telling you it's right, and your Uncle Sammy picked a nice wine. <laughs> All right, Paul, we're going to wrap everything up. If you have a question, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook. We're backslash the Grape Nation. On Instagram, follow us at sbenruby. And on Twitter, it's just Ben Ruby. I want to thank our guest, Paul Greco from Tawar in New York City. Now, Paul, here's a good time. So Tawar is located... 24 Harrison Street in Tribeca. In Tribeca. Um, and how many days a week are we open? We go seven days a week, open at 4 o'clock. Okay. And then Tawar in the High Line goes uh, live next Saturday. Uh, on the High Line. So good timing. We get Rock and roll. So the High Line, you know, during the spring and summer is truly one of the most fun places to be. So think about it. You need a little uh, glass of Riesling, some other wines. Paul will hook you up over there. So keep an eye on that. Um, anything else we need to know about, Paul? No. Just, you got it all? You know what? Drink wine. Drink it as often as you possibly can. That's it. There's the gospel. Remember I told you earlier, God sent Paul down to preach Riesling and wine and wines that need their due. All right. Thanks again to Paul. Thank you to our engineer, Vitor, and to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.